Welcome to this week's episode. My name is Sarinda. You are listening to The Good Show. And we're coming to you this week from Colorado Springs from the Space Symposium. And it is my distinct honor to have in front of me Matt Green. Matt, how are you? Doing well. Thank you, Sarinda. Good. You look good. Don't feel half bad. Appreciate it. <laughs> you look Likewise, very relaxed. Thank you. Thank you. I tried hard with my makeup this morning. <laughs> the, al- <laughs> the allergies here in Colorado Springs are mm. killing me. I have to say that, mm. though. Um, I woke up this morning looking like I was hungover and I didn't have a beer like yesterday. It's not fair. N- not at all. Not at all. So, Matt, I want to talk to you about your military career and the fantastic organization that you've built afterwards, Mavericks. So let's go back to the very beginning beginning, Matt. Tell me about your childhood. I was born at a very young age. (laughs) (laughs) So born and raised in small town, Arkansas. Pea Ridge is actually the name of it. Uh, Uh The only reason you would know that is because there's a Civil War battlefield there. So for the military history buffs, it's right on the uh, Arkansas-Missouri border. It's now not so small because it's also right next door to Bentonville, which is the headquarters of Walmart. Yeah. So born and raised there for 18 years. My ticket out of Arkansas was the U.S. Air Force Academy. So I came here to beautiful Colorado Springs until 1993 when I was paroled and released into the Air Force for the next 23 years and some change as a civil engineering officer. And then retired in 2016 and decided to move back here and started Mavericks about a year later. Now, was there anybody in your family that was prior military service? Yes. Um, the most influential was my grandfather on my mom's side who lived next door to me, literally, growing up. He also had four brothers that served at the same time, all in World War II. Wow. So three in the European theater, two in the Pacific. Um, but my grandfather himself was a D-Day lander on the first wave on Omaha Beach. Oh, wow. Um, was shot up about 40 days later, was told he'd never walk again. About a year later, he said, ah, I'll show you otherwise. So he walked out with his Purple Heart and oh, wow. came back to Arkansas with all the brothers and started building houses and carried the mail and continued to serve okay. in that way. So um, many of those great uncles were also in my life, uh, either locally or at least they'd come to visit. So I had that influence around me, certainly. Did they talk to you about the war? Not much. Just like that, you know, the greatest generation, they just didn't. They put the guns down, they took up the tool belt, and they went to work. Um, Once I was accepted into the academy, then my grandfather started talking more and more about it. And certainly uh, for the rest of his life, um, and he passed away when he was 96. So we had many years to talk about his experience. Um, And my great uncle that lived next to him, uh, so a neighbor as well. Um, got to hear some great, just heroic, fantastic stories from the battlefield of World War II. Now, did you know, uh, as you were growing up, uh, when were you first aware that your uncles, your grandfather, was in the service? So they would sometimes attend the local you know, DAV or VFW, mm-hmm. uh, even in my little town, like so many towns across America, they had those mm-hmm. after the war. And so I knew that there was some affiliation, but they never talked about specifically what they had done in the war. Now, when you, your grandfather started to talk to you um, after you went to the Air Force Academy or just before about about the war and what he did, what did he do? What was his rate? He was an infantryman. 
Okay. 29th Infantry Division. Um, if you've seen the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan, yep. uh, the way that he describes it, because he refused to watch the movie. He said that he had already lived it once and didn't need to relive it. Yeah. But he said it sounded very accurate. And um, so he had cobbled together a small platoon once they landed because they were all separated mm -hmm. uh, and made it 40 days inland uh, into France um, from wow. the 6th of June for 40 more days until wow. he was injured. Well, that makes a lot of sense, though, that why he wouldn't want to watch it because he's already lived it and doesn't want to relive it twice. I mean, you know, he suffered a lot from what we now call PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, they had different terms for it back then, but he had many uh, episodes during my lifetime that didn't make sense to me mm -hmm. then. And they most certainly do now. But yeah. uh, he had a waiver. He didn't have to wear a seatbelt because of one of those uh -huh. episodes where he was trapped inside yeah. a foxhole. And, um, just couldn't stand to be constrained. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it's crazy because I actually spoke to a service member recently about PTSD and he said something to me that I thought was quite profound that maybe in the civilian world people don't get. He said, as I walk down the street and people look at me, I've got two arms, I've got two legs, I look like a normal human being, but nobody knows what's happening inside my head. He said, and I was in a Home Depot recently, and I guess one of those PVC pipes fell off the, the shelf and just the noise that it made really triggered him. He said, and then you go into a different mindset and then you notice people are looking at you and then you go into another mindset where you think, okay, people just think there's something wrong with me. He said, and there is something wrong with me, but you just cannot see it on the outside. Right. You know, the so invisible wounds. Yes, yes. So you you went to Air Force. Um, describe to me your you have a boot camp. Is that what they call basic it? Basic training. Basic sure. training. Um, what was your basic training like? Culture shock for me. Okay. Because other than my grandfather and those great uncles, I didn't have any direct experience with a, a vet. So um, getting yelled at and marching around in squares that was new. Okay. But uh, fairly quickly got past that just because of uh, the fact that we were all in the same boat. Just some great people from across the country, all suffering through this together. And by the end of basic training, I had friendships for life and really enjoyed it, frankly, especially the time that we were in what we call Jack's Valley, kind of out there living in tents and okay. doing more of that kind of stuff instead of wearing the pretty little blues and yeah. marching around. Did you have... Um any idea? Do you remember thinking, okay, I've signed on the dotted line. Do you remember signing on the dotted line? We had to raise our hand in a ceremony okay. and take that oath. So okay. absolutely. Now, what was going through your head? What did you think it was going to be like? Did you have any idea of, okay, well, this is what my, you know. There was a, um, let's see, he was four years senior to me. In my high school, from my hometown, uh -huh. the only person I ever knew that had come to the Air Force Academy. So he invited me out during my senior year of high school, and I got to spend the night in the dorms. So that was my first exposure. Mm -hmm. But those few hours did not adequately prepare me <laughs> for the next four years. But at least I had some kind of a clue as to what I was getting into. Okay. Um, and I had never really been yelled at, um, <laughs> especially with people in your yeah. face spitting. Um but again, it didn't take long to get past that. And you, you can kind of see uh, yeah. the horizon and 
the fact that some of it's gamesmanship, some of it is it's intentional to drive that stress level high and see if you can perform. Yeah. So um, again, I, I really enjoyed basic training. I enjoyed my freshman year because the people that I was with, I think if anyone says they truly enjoyed it and it was a whole lot of fun, there's something wrong with them. But um, for the most part, I did enjoy it because we're all suffering together and with yeah. great people. How did your parents take to you uh, joining the Air Force? So my mom passed away young. That is part of my story. She oh, uh, died sorry. of a brain tumor when I was 11. So it was really my dad and then my uh, extended family to include both sets of grandparents. Uh, mixed emotions. I think uh, certainly pride and service, but obviously uh, concern, especially from the dear grandmothers yeah. uh, about where my career could lead me and what kind of danger I could potentially face, especially yeah. knowing what my grandfather had gone through. How was your dad about it? Did he support you? Oh, absolutely. Do you have siblings? I do. I have one younger brother. Okay. Now, did he follow in your footsteps also? He did not. I guess okay. I scared him off. He's a, <laughs> about four years my junior. And uh -huh. so he graduated from high school about a week before I graduated from the academy. But no, he, he took a different path, more in the business world, although he's now in, in construction okay. on the finance side. So Matt, after you finished your basic training... What was the process in deciding what you do within the Air Force? Mm. Yeah, so during your, what they call the first year at uh -huh. the Air Force Academy, your senior year as a cadet, there is a selection process by which big Air Force assigns you first a, a career field and then a location. And so um, in our senior year, we find out if we're going to be pilots or not. And if not, later on, you, you figure out what career field you're going into. And so as a civil engineering major, fortunately, I was able to select the civil engineering career field and get that. Uh, and then later in the year before graduation, you find out where you're going. And for okay. me, that was Arnold Air Station, Tennessee. So wow. I joined the Air Force to see the world. Uh -huh. And they sent me across the Mississippi River to Tennessee <laughs> from where I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did you ever go? Well, obviously, you did go abroad, though, haven't you? I did. Yes. Although, you know, Tennessee was its own world as well. But <laughs> um, I did. My very next assignment was yeah. down to the panhandle of Florida at Herbert Field in a unit called Red Horse, which is a heavy construction unit. Okay. And um, with that job, I did get to see a lot of the world. Some okay. places nicer than others. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I would continue to do that for the rest of my careers, travel a lot, spent eight straight years in Europe, for example. So Nice. Now, when you went through your basic training, do you remember how many guys there were with you that started that basic training class? No. Okay. <laughs> do you remember, do you know if a lot of them made it or? So... They have changed the policy a few times okay. since I graduated. Um, during my year, you were able to leave during basic training. Um, other classes since then have been told that, no, once you start, you must finish basic training, and then you can make a decision as okay. to whether or not you want to depart. I do not know the numbers. I do know that we had roughly 1,400 people that came into my class, and we graduated approximately 950. That's a big class? And that's a big number to graduate as well. Yeah, I think uh, since then, for a variety of reasons, the class sizes are a little smaller. Mm -hmm. um, but You know, I have always been under the impression um, that people join the Air Force to fly. Um, obviously, that's not the case because there's a lot of other things that you can, you know, that go on. But when you go into basic training, can you say, look, I just want to fly? 
No. I mean, you can say that all you want, but at the end of the day, yeah. it's all about the needs of the Air Force. Okay. As my class experienced, uh-huh. we were um, really the first class to take the most severe reduction in pilot slots, I think, in the history of the academy. So a lot of us that went there with a desire to fly didn't have that opportunity, at least not straight uh-huh. from graduation. Um, but that, you- again, it's it's all about the needs of the Air Force. Yeah. So if there was an opportunity for somebody who wanted to fly and initially you've got to, you know, do something else, can you segue into flying at some point? Yes. Up until you exceed the age limit, then you can continue to apply. And so um, a lot of us did that. We got private pilot's licenses and that kind of thing and continued to apply. and, And many people did get picked up and went on to have successful flying careers. Others decided that you know, what they were doing, they really enjoyed yeah. and stayed with that. What's the age limit? These days, I honestly, I don't know. It's changed. Okay. What was it when you were in? I believe it was 26, okay. somewhere in there, mid to late 20s. Okay. So up until that point, um, you could still fly if the opportunity was mm-hmm. available. Yeah. Okay. Now, you said you've spent a long time in Europe. What about in Europe? So two tours in England, separated by a tour in Germany. So, Where about it, uh, in England did you go? Uh, so RAF Alkenbury Millsworth was okay. Cambridgeshire. Yep. Uh, and then uh, RAF Mildenhall was okay. my second, yeah, British tour. So Now as a Brit, yeah. now an American citizen, but as a Brit, what did you think of England? It was very interesting. So the first assignment in England... It became frustrating because things were so close to America, but yet not quite. Yeah. I, I still drive in a similar car, but on the other side of the road. Uh-huh. <laughs> My second time, so when we left Germany, we actually drove back to England for that second English tour, and it was like coming home. Um, it was so comfortable. Yeah. Uh, so many great people. Matter of fact, I'm flying to London on the in, at the end of May to attend the retirement ceremony for what was my secretary at Milton Hall. She is the longest serving MOD civil servant ever. Oh, wow. She just received an MBE. Miss Faith Rutherford will be retiring after 64 years of honorable service to Her Majesty, His Majesty's government. Well, yes, it is His Majesty's now, yeah. 64 years is, it's a lifetime. It is. It is. And so some of the longest lasting professional relationships that I have to this day mm-hmm. are Brits. Wow. Because I worked with them for two tours. And yeah. even when I went to Germany, I was in the European headquarters for the Air Force. So I still worked with some of those same Brits. So what about in Germany? Did you go? Ramstein. OK. Ramstein Air Base. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think everybody has heard of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've probably flown through there. If yep. nothing else. Yeah. Now, so you do your tours, you come back to the U.S., and how many years do you complete before you retire? So they drug me kicking and screaming <laughs> out of Europe back to the Pentagon okay. in Washington, D.C. And I couldn't make that trip quickly because just the thought of it was painful, yeah. uh, leaving the, the phenomenal eight years I just had. Yeah. So the family and I decided to take the money for the plane tickets that the Air Force gave us. And we jumped on the Queen Elizabeth II and we sailed across. Oh, wow. Came into Brooklyn Harbor at sunrise like the immigrants of old. And uh-huh. so that's what started um, what would be five more years on active duty before I retired. So okay. three years in the Pentagon and then two years at U.S. Transcom, U.S. Transportation Command okay. in the St. Louis area. And then decided it was time to 
start the next chapter. Now, I know you can't tell me everything that, about your time at the Pentagon, but, um, and I've been very fortunate that I've been in the Pentagon, um, but it's a very, it's a very suit and tie kind of environment compared to what you were doing. So how did you find the, the, the handover kind of, you know, changing your mindset working in that environment? Was that hard? It was. I very much prefer to have my boots dirty. Yeah. Um, even as a squadron commander, you know, you're still, you're interfacing with the more senior officials, mm -hmm. but, but my guys and my gals were the ones in the trenches mm -hmm. swinging the hammers and doing the real stuff. And I, I just, I love that. So coming back and being confined to a cubicle for 10 to 12 hours a day was not yeah. my definition of fun, but it was absolutely um, the most educational experience that, that I had concerning senior leadership, uh, leadership styles, uh -huh. and then our system of government. Um, I was fortunate enough to interface with uh, congressional staffers on a fairly regular basis. So to get a glimpse behind the curtain yeah. as to how our government functions was extremely educational. I, I remember going to the Pentagon and being in the Pentagon, um, and it was it was after nine eleven, and I remember just thinking people were walking up this es going up this escalator when everything went mm -hmm. south. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's a very strange. It was a very strange vibe for me. I mean, I'm in complete awe of the military. So any place that I go where it's military and all I saw are all these people milling everywhere, it's just like, wow, people have got shit to do. They're like, oh, you know, they go, go, go. Depending yeah. on March. Yeah. Speed walking. That's exactly what it was. Speed walking on the phone. Yeah. Um, so after the pen, where did you actually retire? So it was, uh, Scott Air Force Base is, um, east of St. Louis on the Illinois side. Okay. So it's from that base that I retired. Um, my actual retirement ceremony was at Grant's Farm in St. Louis, right next to the elephant pen, because it's kind of like a zoo. Okay. And so I wanted to do something different, and so did the kids. And okay. So yeah, that's that's actually where I retired, was from Grant's Farm. But Scott Air Force Base, U.S. Transportation Command. Let's talk about your transition from military into the civilian mm -hmm. world. How was that transition for you personally? Wow. Um, what, seven years now almost in the rearview mirror? Um, I realize now how much I had not prepared. Um, I submitted my retirement papers a full year in advance, mm -hmm. thinking that I would have all this time to think and prepare. And absolutely some of that took place, but not, not nearly enough. Um, and I'm not sure that you fully can be prepared while you still have all those responsibilities of active duty service. But I was fortunate enough to have some bosses that mm -hmm. really understood the importance of preparing for the transition. Um, General Goldfein, actually uh, former chief of staff of the Air Force, he had a comment that he would throw around every now and then about we're all civilians in training. So whether you do a, a single enlistment or whether you do a 40 plus year career as a general officer, eventually you're going to take that uniform off. And so I had a couple of senior leaders in my chain of command that, that really impressed upon me a, a couple of things. As a matter of fact, I'll throw those out here as advice. Um, one is the importance of an informational interview. Once you kind of figure out what you think you want to do, find those companies that are doing that or find mm -hmm. somebody that's doing that and just interview them uh, mm -hmm. for information. No stress. And so many times that leads to a job offer. So mm -hmm. there's one. The other one was determine what your list of guiding principles mm -hmm. is. 
Um, and that will drive um, your decision making throughout that transition process. And honestly, since then as well. Yeah. So every now and then when I'm faced with a decision, I will, I will pull out that list of guiding principles. You know, I don't want to work with jerks. Yeah. Uh, it needs to be good for the family. I want flexibility of schedule. All those things are important to me uh, to help drive those decisions. Those are two of the best things, uh, two of the best pieces of advice I got in my transition. And so many people don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was guilty. I, I was back at work the week after my retirement ceremony, just getting things ready for for my relief, for my replacement. Mm. Um, so, you know, don't do what I did, but um, at least make some time how to did, take care of yourself and your family. How did you, how do you think you fed mentally? Because in this day and age with the landscape, there's a lot mm. of emphasis on mental health. And I have spoken to a lot of service members that will say to me, one day I was there, mm-hmm. the next day I wasn't. And there was no in between. Um, And it affects people in different ways. How did it affect you? I think there's something magic about 12 months out of the uniform. And matter of fact, I had a a psychologist as part of my my VA Mm -hmm. um, physical. So, you know, that that mental health assessment as you're going out of the uniform, we had a a lengthy conversation about this. Mm -hmm. And in his... His comments paraphrased were, especially you career guys, you have 20, 30 years mm-hmm. of, of military experience and the stress and the responsibility that is built up just right, right here in your neck and back. And it, it seems to take about a year for that to release. Yeah, decompress. And so while that happens, it's not just your muscles, it's your mind. And so things may start to come to mind that you have suppressed because you had a mission to do up until now. Um because even some very demanding civilian jobs may not have all of the stress and the pressure and the responsibility that you carry in the military. Uh-huh. You know, as, as commanders, first sergeants, et cetera, that phone can ring at two o'clock in the morning. It's never really truly off your mind, Yeah. Um, especially if you really care about your people. And that's exactly what I found to be true. So at first it was the elation. Um, and this kind of mirrors the pattern that I saw with different assignments or even deployments, there's the elation of something new and exciting. And Mm -hmm. I'm so glad to be done with that uniform. And then all of a sudden I find myself without the purpose, without the camaraderie, without the direction. Um, And then eventually, you know, most people modulate and you Mm -hmm. find that sweet spot. Um, Not, not everyone does. And I know we're going to talk more about that later, but that was my experience. um, That, that initial after the elation, it was, I'm no longer part of something as big uh-huh. um, as what I was, at least vocationally. Um, and I struggled quite a bit to figure out what I wanted to do. Matter of fact, I took a, a transition job doing something completely different because I was, frankly, burned out uh-huh. by a lot of my time. Uh, the last five years being on a headquarters staff, um, just wanted to do something completely different away from the uniform. And so I'd always been fascinated by financial planning and that uh-huh. kind of thing. And so I went to work as a financial planner for about a year. Um, and then this idea that I had had for many years about a construction company as a way to help vets, um, that really came to the forefront. That became my passion. I started it. And then the company I was working for made me make a decision, oh. which way was it going to be? And at that point, uh, it became clear. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people have similar experiences veteran wise that I've talked to. Well, if you don't mind me asking from a personal uh, 
perspective. Did your transition affect your spouse, your children? Did you were there any elements where you felt a little detached? Um, how difficult do you think it was for your spouse to support you um, during this period of time? Very much. Yeah. Um, so what is now my ex-spouse okay. had grown up as a military brat. Okay. Her entire life, not just her adult life, not just her married life, her entire life had been spent in a military community. And now all of a sudden, I think it was perhaps in, in certain ways, it was more stressful for her than for me. Yeah. Now, I, and I'll say this, you know, and to any spouses listening, there is, um, it's it's not that it's not doable for us, but there is an effect that it takes place. It, it does affect us. It, it does affect the family, you know. Um, and I think that um, there was no, I mean, I've been married 26 years. Nobody gave me a handbook on, okay, listen, at some point he's going to leave. These are the things that might happen. Mm. This is what you've got to do. Um, and I think those things are only now coming out as mm-hmm. well that, hey, this is what, uh, trans, this is how transitions can affect family. Um and so I guess it's good and bad that your spouse at the time mm-hmm. had grown up in a military environment. But it just goes to show that even though she grew up in that military environment, the your retirement and that transition period is still very new. Mm-hmm. You know, it's we don't know what can happen and how it happens, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean... I totally, I'm right in that transition. And the the thing I tell spouses, and let me know if this rings true for you, my husband served 30 years. There is an element of conditioning. Absolutely. That occurs. And I think that as spouses, it's not brought to our attention. We are not aware of it. We're just like, hey, what's his problem? Mm -hmm. You know? So obviously your time frame, you were conditioned also. How do you break out of that conditioning? Do you ever... If I knew that answer, I'd, <laughs> I'd write a book. You'd make a million. <laughs> yeah. At time and environment, yeah. I think both. Um, so one thing that I've tried to do in my company, mm-hmm. um, because of what I've gone through personally since I retired, is, is take the goodness mm-hmm. of the military, you know, the values and those good habits, those things yeah. that are held up in high regard about the military, mm-hmm. bring those into my company, bring those into my life, keep those in yeah. my life. Um, don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. But all that bureaucracy and some of that inefficiency and some of the other nonsense that a lot of us were tired of in the military, do away with that. Yeah. Um, so I think being intentional about that, being aware of it, first yeah. of all, of course, um, and then being intentional about it was certainly help. But there's certainly an element of time that's yeah. required because we have been so conditioned. Yeah. It took me a long time to stop reaching for my phone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen my husband as well. You know, I mean, he got phone calls in the middle of the night. And, and you know, now, um, even though he's still in this similar environment, um, it, it, I think it was a little strange for him mm-hmm. not to get that phone call, not to go to deal with a guy, you know, not to do the job. And I think with the transition, I think it takes both the service member and the spouse time that you can't put a... A stamp on it. We, mm-hmm. we don't know. It's going to take you nine months or mm-hmm. whatever. It's a, an everyday thing, you know, just 
working through it every day. I think you hit on a key point. Um, a lot of the spouses clubs um, around the military have mm. come so far, mm -hmm. especially since 2001 when we started deploying on yeah. this ridiculous ops tempo. So a lot of the focus, though, was just on that. It was on those deployments. And yeah. yes, those are hard and they are worthy yeah. of that attention and care. I still think that transition out of the uniform is a, it's a neglected topic in it a lot is. of those groups. Yeah, I'm glad uh, that there are more groups, um, spousal groups coming together that are facing it, you know, head on. Because I, I just got an email yesterday from a gal that said uh, that listened to one of the shows and she said, oh, my gosh, I went through that. I did not know who to go to. Um, so I just kind of like sucked it up and mm -hmm. carried on. But, uh, yeah, I think it, it just only makes for a better family unit. That's exactly right. You know? And I think, you know, there perhaps there is a um, there's an opportunity there for yeah. already transitioned spouses and veterans to find a community with those people that have already made that transition that are one to 20 years ahead of you. Mm -hmm. I think to surround yourself with those people yeah. uh, is definitely beneficial. Now let's uh, talk about your company mm. that you have put some sweat and hard work into. Tell us about Mavericks. Tell us how you came about the idea. What's it, what is it for? Mm. How you help veterans? Yeah, so um, I was deployed in 2008 to northern Iraq. And um, toward the end of my tour there, I did a lot of work in support of with the Army. Mm -hmm. And so um, we had gone through a convoy briefing. We were taking our smoke break, you know, before we, we mount up. And I'm surrounded by these soldiers that are close to the end of their tour as well. And many of them are going back home because they're guardsmen and reservists, and they're going to be demobilized. They are taken off the uniform that they're so proud to wear, mm -hmm. they're going to transition into a job um, mm -hmm. where they're not at the top of their game. I mean, mm -hmm. there's nobody better on the planet than what these guys and gals were in mm -hmm. their field, infantrymen or what have you. Um, and so they were terrified. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were very, very concerned about that transition. And so that got me thinking, like, what, what could we do? What could I apply from my background to help those vets? And so I kicked around numerous ideas about handyman businesses, et cetera, about how you could take somebody out of the uniform and fairly quickly transition them into the construction industry. Well, fast forward to 2017, I decided that I had spent way too much time thinking about it. Mm -hmm. It was time to throw myself out of the airplane and knit the parachute before <laughs> I hit the ground. And so that's exactly what I did. I started Mavericks. I hired um, three people that had some skills. And we started a handyman business. We started very small and humble. Um, and since then, and that was uh, five and a half years ago or so, we have evolved to the place that we are now. And where we are now is a licensed general contractor here in Colorado Springs, performing mostly residential remodels, some uh -huh. new additions, and commercial facility maintenance. But the purpose behind all of that and, and my passion is twofold. Two societal nationwide problems that we're facing. One is the nation's shortage of skilled labor. Yeah. And two is the thousands of veterans that continue to struggle to make a healthy transition into civilian life. So in my tiny little way, mm -hmm. I'm trying to come up with a system that helps to remedy both of those. Okay. And so how do we help vets? 
One, we give hiring preference to military veterans and family members. We subcontract when we need to subcontract to veteran-owned businesses. Um, three, we go to networking events, job fairs, and one-on-one -on -one occasions, and we talk to veterans that are interested in getting into the construction business. And then most recently, um, about a year and a half now, we've been accepted by the DOD SkillBridge program to offer internships for those veterans that are on active duty within six months of transitioning out of the uniform, mm -hmm. they can apply to their chain of command, um, get picked up by an authorized skill bridge provider, mm -hmm. and then do time with them uh, with the intent, of course, of that leading to employment. So we've had several now, I don't exactly remember, um, less than a dozen, but several skill bridge interns that have come uh, through Mavericks for at least eight weeks. And we've had all walks of life. We've mm -hmm. had our soldiers um, and our airmen, primarily mm -hmm. because you know, that's the representation here yeah. between Fort Carson and the Air Force and Space Force bases that surround us. But we've had security forces, cops, uh, most recently a firefighter. I actually have oh, another nice. Air Force cop with us now. Um, had a Na Naval Civil Engineer Corps nice. representative come, come through our program. And so I've used them and I tell them this, you are a guinea pig. You are helping me figure out what might work on a larger, you know, a scalable, more formal level to help a lot more vets. So that's what I'm most excited about is that um, I've got the 90% solution, I think, yeah. drafted. And we are pursuing funding to make this happen. But what this is, is a seven to eight week program, uh -huh. combination of classroom controlled environment, hands-on, as well as real-world job site experience. Mm -hmm. And so during that time, these veterans or family members will be continually assessed and at different phases, and certainly at graduation, will know by then kind of what they're good at, mm -hmm. what they've shown the ability to perform, what they enjoy, what they want to do career-wise, and then we help them get matched to the appropriate employer. Um, again, the SkillBridge interns are the, the primary audience for that because yeah. they're still getting paid by the military. They're uh -huh. still insured. We don't have a lot of those other concerns. But um, I hope to have some better news to announce later this summer as far as success and in, in funding and, and making that a reality. So okay. that's where we're at. Let, let's go back to the beginning. You, for anybody that's listening out there that is in two minds about, I, I want to start something. You had the idea. Mm -hmm. Talk us through from the idea, what do you put on paper? Where do you take it? How do you navigate? Just the start, because I find that with a lot of people, it's the start yep. that is the, the problem. Yep. I think there's a lot of science coming out these days um, about procrastination. And yeah. that's what all of them say, right? Yeah. Just get started. Yeah. Just dedicate five minutes to getting started. I would say the same thing about a startup, a new company. Um what was so helpful to me, especially here in this town, there are tremendous resources, mm -hmm. all uh, geared around entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. But these are around the nation as well. So the small business development centers, the mm -hmm. what were formerly called PTAC, now called the Apex Centers for those small businesses that want to do business with the federal government. Those for me were just fantastic resources. So SBDC and then um, SCORE is another organization. Uh -huh the retired executives that volunteer to help people like me that had no clue what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So I had a, a fairly good idea on notebook paper, Yeah. Uh, some chicken scratches. Matter of fact, I had an entire notebook. It was semi-organized, but I, I basically, and I'm in desperation, I walked into the 
the SBDC and says, I need help making this binder a reality. Um, and, and from there, that was the beginning. Um, with some very simple instruction, I had my company registered with the state. I was connected with the appropriate insurance person, started to understand all the, the those important um, team Legal, members, yeah. you know, the, the, the bail team, yeah. the banker, the accountant, the insurance, the lawyer, um, all of that. And then it, it just snowballed from there. But I will tell you to this day, and again, that's been almost six years ago now, uh, I'm learning something every day. Uh, anybody that says they know it all, no. they, they're lying to you. <laughs> But that's also what I love about it. It's yeah. exciting. Uh -huh. uh, I love, uh, as much as I hate the boss that I work for, which is myself, I love <laughs> having the ability yeah. to make decisions like that yeah. and turn things around. Um, so that's you, part of my story. Do you have a crew of people that are working with you right now? I do. How many do you have? So it's a revolving door in the mm -hmm. construction industry. I think about 60 some odd percent um, are retained every year. And that's been no different for me, especially at the craftsman level. But mm -hmm. I, I am absolutely blessed. Um, who is now my right hand man, my chief of operations, had very little background in construction. He's a younger guy, very tech savvy. He has a background in finance. He has mm -hmm. a bachelor's in finance. Um, he has become... Uh, the daily operator of the entire organization. And so he brought a lot of business and finance acumen into mm -hmm. our our team. And so between he and I, we were able to cover down a lot of those needs. So what we've done since then is essentially outsourced or mm -hmm. um, we're using fractional C-suite members, you know, for okay. lack of a better term. So for our, our finance folks and accountants, we're not big enough to justify full-time employees. So our full-time employees are the ones in the field. We have foremen and laborers that are out there performing the work. And then, like I mentioned before, we subcontract, uh, okay. hopefully, to veteran-owned businesses when we can. Um, but that expertise is out there, and it, there is a lot of um, support for the small business entrepreneurial community. And so there are businesses out there that are specifically for that purpose, for companies like mine that really can't justify the full-time HR, the full-time mm -hmm. CFO. Uh, they perform that role for us, and we've developed the relationships with them over the years, or we've figured out that we're not a good fit, and we yeah. move on. Um, and that's working. And I think um, for those that are thinking about it or those that have started their own businesses, there are lower-risk ways to yeah. go about that. Um, certainly franchise models is one of them, but uh, finding those resources that are available to you in your local area and utilize those without overextending yourself. Yeah, I think I think resources, and I've said this to a lot of people, like you just said, there's a lot of resources out there, but sometimes I think there's so many resources mm -hmm. out there. People get a little confused as to who am I going to and where am I going? But I, I tell people all the time, it's this is part and parcel of opening a business doing a business it's the part that most people don't like that's right you know um, and it's probably the hardest part but once you get going you've got that support behind you as well and now you've you know connected with people that can help yep. let me go back to you mentioned that mavericks is for um, transitioning service members and their families mm -hmm. so is it would it be fair to say then if a, a service member's uh, child or even spouse mm -hmm. um, wanted to come in and um, 
you know, learn a couple of things, see what they were good at, see if it was a good fit for them. Yep. You're open to that. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for insurance purposes, um, we target those that are 18 and above. Yeah. So adult children. But yes, most certainly adult children and spouses are more than welcome to talk to us. And in many cases, it's not us. We're not the best fit. Yeah. But because of our connections, especially here in Colorado Springs, we can get them placed in with the right employer, prospective yeah. employer, and figure out what they want to do next. I think this is the first time I've heard um, of a foundation, a cause that where your spouse and your mm -hmm. kids, hey, if you're interested, come on, we'll, we'll see if it's a fit for you. So and it's part a of the, uh, the reason behind that is the culture. Yeah. Because as you well know, the spouses and the kids, they they understand so much of the veteran culture more than anyone else. Yeah. And so when I say veteran community, I'm not talking about just a community of purely veterans. Yeah. It's the community of veterans and their families. Now, since you started nearly six years ago, what's your highlight been of your business? Mm, so we we have helped in one form or another hundreds might be a stretch, but mm -hmm. certainly dozens of, of military veterans and a handful of the family members to get placed in some just remarkable positions. Um, we've had uh, soldiers that really didn't understand the construction industry and with a very little bit of training mm -hmm. because they already brought the hands-on training. They just need to understand some of the language and uh, how to sell themselves, how to translate that military experience into the civilian construction industry. And they doubled their pay. They are in superintendent positions with nice. lots of responsibility overseeing some good-sized construction projects. So, um, you know, that's that's one example. A, a lot of my, what I consider the, the most rewarding victories are very yeah. small. Yeah. Uh, one example, so we hired um, a young Marine, um, he was wrestling some demons. He had a lot of things in his past that he struggled with. But because of some of the veteran-focused nonprofit organizations here in town, they found him. They got him out of homelessness. They got him recovered from addiction and on a road uh, to employment. Wow. So um, we hired him. And, um, and this story stands out to me for a handful of reasons. But uh, back in the early days, especially needing a change of pace from my, my uniform service <laughs> days, uh, I got my hands dirty a lot uh -huh. more. So this young man, uh, another retired Air Force veteran and I, we, we replaced the flooring in a house. Uh -huh. So we ripped out this nasty old carpet. We went back with some very nice luxury vinyl tile. And at the end of the day, before we move the furniture back in, the three of us are standing at the door and we're looking at this floor that we had just placed. And I look over at this young Marine and he's crying. And I was like, what's going on? Are you okay? Yeah. He said, I think that's the only thing I've done with my hands in the last five years that I'm proud of. Wow. I think we all know the value of working with your hands, yeah. but it was at that moment that I really understood the importance for somebody like him yeah. that was really struggling mm -hmm. with trauma, years worth of trauma and bad decisions and the shame that comes with that. Mm -hmm. So there is absolute therapy in yes. what we're doing. Yeah. And so just further invigorated me to figure out a way to make this scalable to help more people. Tell me what highlight of your Air Force career sticks out? It's the same thing. Um, 
You know, I was fortunate enough to, like in that Red Horse unit I mentioned, the heavy construction unit, I got to work on some designs and then be part of the team building mm -hmm. and then the actual deployment to go over to places mm -hmm. in the Middle East um, or Europe and actually build what I had helped design mm -hmm. uh, with the team that I had helped build. Yeah. So there's just nothing more rewarding for an engineer or a constructor yeah. than that. So. You know, that's one example of kind of the, the big uh, professional success. But for me, what, what motivates me, it's people. Yeah. It's all about serving people, especially the underdog and the outcast. And um, I won't embarrass them by naming names, but I have a stack of letters that I have kept. Uh -huh. You know, I retired. I finally went through some of those boxes of things mm -hmm. that I'd collected over the years, but I still have a few boxes left. And and one of those is intentional, and it's a handful of mostly handwritten notes, cards from uh, mostly the younger enlisted, maybe uh, new officers. And it's that tiny little thing that I did for them that I didn't think twice about. But for them, it was a big deal. Yeah. And for them to express their appreciation in writing to me just meant the world. And it yeah. still does to this yeah. day. In some cases, you know, that's 25 years ago. Um but that that still motivates me. So when I'm down in the dumps, I pull that box out and I read those cards. Yeah. What, let me go back to your deployments. Um, only because I spoke to a young spouse the other day. And um, I remember when my husband went on deployment, I couldn't call him. Mm. I wrote a letter. There was no email. There was nothing electronic. Care packages, care packages were sent and you just hoped they got to him. Yeah. Um, nowadays... There's with all the, you know, email, phone, text, whatever, good stuff. It's a lot easier to keep a relationship going and keep that communication going. But I also think there's a downside to that. You know, um, I am old school and um, I think absence makes the heart grow fonder. You appreciate people, you know, you, you appreciate your partner when they're not around Um how do you feel about the communication that takes place today compared mm -hmm. to when you were active duty, where the service member is so accessible? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, how do you strike the sweet spot? I don't know. But what you just described, you know, that, that evolution of communication yeah. for service members deployed, that, that was my life. My first few deployments, I was lucky to get one satellite phone call a month yeah. back to home because it was so expensive and you had a job to do. Um, my last deployment, quite the opposite, at least when we were on one of those big, uh, big camps or big fobs that had internet service yeah. and, and, you know, you can have real time FaceTime with your spouse and kids. Um, so again, I have mixed emotions about that. And here's one specific example to me. I'm sitting there with my laptop open on my last deployment um, with, um, I think it was my two little girls, and a, a rocket came in and struck right outside my little living quarters. And I slammed that thing shut and jumped under my bed. And they didn't know on the other end yeah. if I was alive or dead. It, and they talked about that for years. Yeah. So that's one of the downsides. Yeah. Um, the distraction from the mission. Yeah. You know, such as what your husband did for a living. You, we, we need those guys and gals absolutely focused yeah. on what they're doing. And so there has to be limitation yeah. on that. But at the same time, um, there's nothing like 
seeing your family face to face. So I think it's up to the leadership to figure out what's best yeah. in those situations. I know we were also um, advised strongly um, social media. I mean, I'm not a social media gal, Me um, but um, not to place things on, you know, social media for very obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I'm old school. So if I was told, hey, don't do this because it's an issue. You just don't do it. That's right. You know, um, but I do find a lot of young spouses these days. It's 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 part of their growing mm-hmm. up, though. They grew up in this social media electronic world that they really don't see. Well, why not? That's how we communicate. You know, so natural. To yeah, them. it is mm-hmm. very natural. So sometimes I think it is difficult for leadership to place constraints on them, mm-hmm. you know, and um I've heard varying responses, you know, but people have said, well, it's up to the service member to let the, you know, spouse know that, hey, this cannot be like this or this is just the way it has to be. But I don't know if so many service members say that because, you you know, there's that whole thing that the service member gets the information, but does it really get down to mm-hmm. the family? Um, so, yeah, it, it is very much a double-edged sword, but I also find as well that, and I'm going to age myself here, but... I find that a lot of people in my age group, a lot of spouses in my age group, um, they're still with that spouse, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in this day and age, mm-hmm. they, it's not so much, mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes I put that down to, hey, you had too much communication, you know? <laughs> you should have just nipped it in the bud and let him do his thing, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, the, the, it's a, it, it is very much a double-edged sword. You have two daughters, you said. I do. Have either of them expressed any interest in the military? Not, not directly. So um, they have certainly expressed interest in service of mm-hmm. some sort, and they have expressed interest in traveling because okay. both of them being born in Europe, they've got the travel bug. Yeah. So who knows? Uh, my oldest is now 18. She just graduated. From high school last year, she is actually one of my poster children because she decided, despite the offer of some college scholarships, and she's a very bright young lady who did very well in the SAT, she decided to take a year Mm -hmm. and um, she spent it as an electrical apprentice. Oh, wow. So she's, she now thinks that because she, she does love electricity, she's one of those weird people that actually understands it. Yeah. I've been around it my whole life, and I yeah. still don't completely understand it. She gets it. Yeah. She's going to start pursuit of her electrical engineering degree. So nice. as a young lady who put on a tool belt and did it for a year, figured out what she likes and what she doesn't and what she thinks she wants to do next, that's exactly how it should be. Yeah. And that's a message that I have to so many people, Mm -hmm. junior high on up. College is not absolutely required for quote unquote success, at least not immediately after high Mm -hmm. school. Go figure it out. Figure out what you want to do and do what makes the most sense without going into a whole lot of debt to do it. Yeah. And she's one example of, of how that can look. Now, I I have two kids and my oldest, um, we had a similar conversation about college and stuff like that. And I agree with you. I don't think you necessarily need um, a piece of paper to say you have a degree to know what day it is. You know, um, my parents always said to me, you know, you've just got to want 
You've just got to do the job, dot your I's, cross your T's, put in 100%, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I say to my son all the time, as parents, our job is to set you up for success. I'm not sure you're an academic but I know you're a worker. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can learn a lot on the job about yourself, about, you know, other people, just about life. Yep. And again, debt free. Absolutely. You know, and specific to the construction industry, because of the decline of the workforce, yeah. I think the last stat I saw, approximately half a million construction related vacancies today. Oh, really? Absolutely. And um, the average age of a skilled tradesperson, depending on you know what study you read, but it's definitely in the 50s. So they are aging out. For wow. every plumber and electrician yep. that decides to retire, there's a fraction of yeah. a youngster to take their place. Yeah. So if you think that construction costs are bad now, if you think you're paying a plumber a lot now, you just wait. Yeah. So that's another reason. With a four-year apprenticeship, you can be making six digits and yeah. the world is your oyster. Work for somebody, start your own business. Yeah. You have all kinds of options. You've been getting paid to get that four years worth of experience. And then you have a very bright future ahead of you. Let, let me ask you about Mavericks. Where, what are your projections for the next five years? Five years. So we have a couple of goals. One is to really figure out this, this training venue. What does this look like? Let's finalize that. And then let's replicate it. Let's mm -hmm. go to San Diego, where there's a lot of veterans taken off the uniform. Mm -hmm. Let's go to San Antonio, Texas. Let's go somewhere, maybe Virginia, Jacksonville, what have you. Let's regionalize this concept once we've proven that it works and we know how to do it. So that's the training side. Part of the reason that I think I will always operate a for-profit construction company mm -hmm. is that I will control the quality of job site training mm -hmm. that that schoolhouse offers. So part of the model is to partner with local contractors, especially those that do things that my company doesn't, mm -hmm. uh, to get these trainees that experience. But to have those two things side by side, that pre-apprenticeship training program and a construction company of some size, and have that in regions across the country, and then to expand that um, mm -hmm. beyond what I've done I've intentionally stayed small to kind of figure this out. Yeah. But I think I can scale the construction company side of it as okay. well to include, um, like myself, those that have the big construction background. We could get into the bigger construction projects uh, within that company and then offer that experience and not have to uh, rely on partners to do that. But um, it's a flexible model, and that's yeah. why I like it. But to answer your question, I would like to regionalize you know, finalize the concept and then yeah. go regional. Now, I'm I'm just going to assume here that, you know, you don't get a lot of spare time. But when you do get spare time, what do you do? I'm very much an outdoors person. Okay. Um, I'm an introvert by nature, so I recharge alone. And mm -hmm. so I typically recharge outside. Okay. So I'm an avid hiker. I am a, I used to be a distance runner. And now what I consider long distance is a, it is not very many miles. Okay, listen, sorry to interrupt, but I know everybody can hear the rustling. So we've, I want to introduce <laughs> Russ Laney, who's just walked in here. Russ, can you just shout out hello to everybody? Hello. There you go. <laughs> Russ is helping himself to a little bar, a little snack. On you go, rustle away, my friend. <laughs> um, oh, gosh, now I've lost my train of thought. We were talking about... Um, 
what were we talking about? See, uh, this is how... Free time. Free time, yes. Recharge You outside. recharge outside. Mm-hmm. So, do you... Sports, let's talk about sports. Are you a sports guy? Yeah, well, I used to be much okay. more so than I am now. I think living in Europe, I became much more of a... A global football fan, ah, okay. uh, but also the time zone change, right? Yeah. It's just so difficult to follow. I love college football, and I've gotten back into that uh-huh. since I retired. Um, so I have my favorites on the college football side. But other than that, it's it's chasing kids and their interests. And so uh, I do have my youngest daughter that has a horse. So oh. become more of an equine guy. Okay. Now, tell me something about yourself that nobody else knows and that just might surprise our listeners about you, Matt. Matt's rolling his eyes. I hate this question. (laughs) Nobody else knows. What's your guilty pleasure? I do like dark chocolate and red wine. Oh, you do? And I've actually found a diet lately that I can eat as much of that as I want and still lose weight. So, um, I just had a flashback to junior high. I actually, um, <laughs> before I really discovered running or it discovered me and became my addiction, I played saxophone in oh, the you junior did? high band. Yeah. Now, what kind of sax did you play? Alto. I played alto sax yeah. at school. I was like the only, they were like, we need a guy that can play sax. We've got no guys. Okay, surrender. You, you jump in. Wow. I loved it, actually. Yeah. I, I really did enjoy it, and I, I have some regrets about laying it aside. Yeah. Maybe one day. Well, I put it on my bucket list, you know, that I'm going to go and purchase an alto sax. I'm going to take a couple of refresher lessons, and, you know, of course, I'm going to do that on the eighth day of the week. Yes, you know, exactly. Yeah. Well, related to that, I did recently buy a mandolin, because I'm also oh. a, a closet big bluegrass fan. So oh. there's another little tidbit for you. There you go. Now, the last thing I want to ask you is you've got to give me give a new recruit Mm. some advice. What would you advise them as they're going through their basic training, going into the Air Force? What would your advice be? Open mind. Realize that uh, some of the nonsense that they experience as a basic trainee and as a young enlisted or young officer, um, it has a purpose, perhaps. But, but really, their service to their nation is so much bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. And the experience that they're getting is going to pay them back tenfold, which is going to allow them to give back mm-hmm. tenfold uh, to the veteran community and to the nation as a whole. So I guess to summarize that, take some of the nonsense with a grain of salt. It's worth it. Yeah. And thank you for your service, by the way. Matt, if either of your daughters decided that they wanted to go the, um, you know, join the military, how would you feel about that? As long as they were doing it for the right reason and they went into it with as much education as they could get, which I would make sure they had by sharing Mm -hmm. my experiences, I absolutely support it. Because as we've discussed, um, there's so many paths to get to a quote unquote successful life, however you may define that. And military service can be the very next lily pad that you jump onto uh-huh. that opens up uh, opportunities for so many other lily pads yeah. that can be extremely rewarding and satisfying. If people want to get in touch with you, how do they get in touch with you? Probably email is the best way, matt at mavericksco.com. And that's also the domain for our website. So it's just www.mavericksco, that's uh, mavericksplural.co.com.
Matt, it has truly been a pleasure to have you on today. Russ, we appreciate the rustle of the, the bars in the back. And you know we love you. Um, Matt, we will talk again soon. And once again, thank you for your time. This has been The Good Show. I'm your host, Sarinda Good. Thank you for joining us and listening again next week. Thanks for listening to today's show. Press that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Leave me that review so we can get more pro-military folks involved with growing this platform. If you've got a story to tell and you want to be on the show, then go to my website, thegoodshow.com. That's G-O-O-D-E show.com. Press the contact button and drop me an email. My name's Sarinda. I'm your military gal and I'm out. Thank you.